Thankful that you're here this morning, and I'm thankful to all of you that are watching online and listening later, uh, podcast or other means. And we had a great week this past week. Summer Spectacular was a tremendous success, and I'm thankful to people from all three of our campuses who helped to make it so. So many people were involved, and it was such a blessing to be a part of seeing a lot of lives affected. We had about 5,500 people register and actually about 6,000 people come at one point or the other. Uh, Many of them, in fact, the majority of them, not part of our church. And I just got overwhelmed. I can't tell you how many times someone would yell, Pastor Rick, and I would turn around and there would be a visitor just thanking me over and over for something so wholesome they could bring their family to. And I accepted the thanks on behalf of all of you because I had a very, very small part in Summer Spectacular. But so many of you taught classes or built sets or uh, ushered or answered questions and hosted or performed. And and the list just goes on and on. It took hundreds of people to do what happened last week. And I sincerely thank all of you that had a part. Now, the single question I was asked the most last week was this one. You see, the Bible says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. In fact, only three people in the Bible are called handsome, Joseph, David, and Absalom. And so I was asked again and again, why didn't you play the lead role in the musical this year? And I was just too busy with my teaching duties. So we got the second best looking man in the whole church to be Joseph. And I thought he did a really good job. You see, um, one of the reasons... One of the reasons, whether you even know the Bible story or not, one of the reasons people resonate with the story of Joseph is because you can relate to him on so many levels. He's a brother with family issues. He's an employee. He's an inmate. He's a government official. He's a business man. He's a sob story. He's a success story. There's just so many different levels to relate to Joseph. And yet, maybe his most important role is the one least appreciated. The most important thing about Joseph is this. He was a son. In fact, notice how the Bible starts the story of Joseph. There are 13 chapters in Genesis, more than any other character on Joseph, but it starts like this in chapter 37. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17. So from the very start, we are told that Joseph's story is Israel's story. And you can't understand the significance of the son without considering how his father figured in to the story. Because a father always figures in to a great story. So what I want to do is this morning read several texts quickly to you just to show you how powerful this connection and relationship was. Now, later we're going to unpack some of the stuff between Joseph and his brothers because that's important. But I'm going to skip ahead to the time when he's with his brothers in Egypt. They don't know who he is yet. 
And he thinks it's time now for them to know. And he's got a reason and an agenda. I want you to look with me, chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. And so there was no one but Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? That's the first thing he wants to know. Not how are you guys doing? How are my nephews and nieces? How are things back at the farm? The first thing burning in his heart is to know about his father. And his first priority is to arrange a father-son reunion. So a little later in the same chapter we read. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it really is I who am speaking to you. Now tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen and bring my father down here quickly. This is what he cares about more than anything else. Now, at that time, because of the famine, there was a strict immigration policy in Egypt. You couldn't just move anywhere you wanted in the country. But God has given Joseph so much favor with the king that not only is Pharaoh okay with the whole family coming down to Egypt, Pharaoh says, I'll pay for the move. And he does. And so Joseph sets it all up. He gets a bunch of carts. He puts clothes on it. He puts food on it. He puts money on it. He says, go get dad and get him down here quick. And it's kind of funny. The last thing he says to his brothers is, don't quarrel on the way. Because he doesn't want them having one of their typical arguments and delaying the reunion. And so they take off. Verse 25, it says, they went up out of Egypt, came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob was stunned. He didn't believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, if you've got an old person in your family, you know this is true. Old people don't like to move. My papa actually lived in the same little bitty tiny house in Waco, Texas, in a bad part of town for 50 years. I asked him one time, Papa, if you won the lottery, what would you do? He said, I'd fix up the house. Fix it up. Get out of here. But old people don't like to move. Except if that's the only way you can go see your son. And so we read starting in verse 26. And by the way, there's just some parts of the Bible you just really can't improve. You just read and fill them. And this is one. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. And with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the member of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. Now, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen and met his father Israel. And as soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. 
And Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I have seen for myself that you were still alive. I think this is the most important role in Joseph's life. He was a son. And deep in the heart of every son is a longing to connect or reconnect to his father. A generation ago, there was a very popular movie I enjoyed called Field of Dreams. And in this movie, the main character is dealing with a lot of turmoil in his life. It all goes back to a bad relationship with his father that he was never able to fix. Now, you think the movie is about this weird ball field in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa where these baseball players from the past start showing up to play ball. But at the very end of the movie, a young man is out on the field and he realizes that's his dad. Watch how it ends. Hey, Dad? You want to have a catch? I'd like that. That movie wasn't about baseball. That movie was about the most universal desire on earth. Reconciliation. Last December in England, they did a poll of 2,000 families to find out what do kids want for Christmas. Top 10 list. They figured Xbox, iPhone. You know what made the list? Dad. The kids weren't saying, I I don't know that there's a person out there who isn't my biological father. Yeah, there's a man somewhere who is the reason I exist. But what I really wish is I had an engaged, connected dad. That's what I wish I had for Christmas. Because a father figures powerfully in the shaping of a child, whether it's good or bad. You see, Jacob was a powerful influence on Joseph's life. He gets down to Egypt in a totally different culture. Where did his standards come from? Why is it that even though you got the boy out of Canaan, you never got Canaan out of the boy? You see, Jacob was there for the first 17 years of his son's life, shaping and molding him. And it's cool that Joseph was there for the last 17 years of his father's life, giving him honor. And Jacob had his flaws. But I'm going to tell you, as a father, he finished strong. A godly father figures out the significance of stressing the blessing for his family. And I want to show you quickly three ways he blessed his family. You'd think when he found out that Joseph was alive, he would get down to Egypt as fast as his old legs could carry him. But he had to do something very important before he would apply for an Egyptian passport. Look at chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, now Beersheba is the very last place in the southernmost part of Canaan before you leave Canaan. He stopped there, 
And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here am I, he answered. I'm the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I'll surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. What's Jacob doing stopping? Why does he get to the very tip of the border of Canaan and decide to have church service? Well, his own father figured into his action. You see, back in chapter 26, it said there was a famine in Canaan. And God said to Isaac, his father, don't go to Egypt. Do not go to Egypt, but you depend on me and you stay right here in the land of promise. Now, there's another famine. And what's everybody saying? Let's go to Egypt. And why not? Joseph is there. But do you see that before he will leave the land of promise, he wants to make sure it won't jeopardize the promise because his God is big enough to take care of them in Canaan if that's where they're supposed to stay. Without clear direction from God, Jacob would have gone down to Egypt, had a short visit with Joseph, and he would have gone right back to Canaan because the covenant of his fathers was more important than the company of his son. That's blessing number one. When you've got a dad that seeks the Lord before he seeks to lead. He sought revelation from God. And by the way, he served a God who speaks and who leads and who guides and who directs. He wasn't trying to bother his father's faith. He's trying to live on his own. I know this is what God told my father, but I'm living in my faith. And what is God telling me today? How does God want me to lead my family? Because God's not a formula. God's a relationship. And he sought a relationship with the living, speaking God because he wanted to do the right thing for his family. So imagine the impact it had on his sons when Jacob said, I have heard from God. And we're going to settle down in Egypt because he's got plans for us there before he brings us back here. And what a blessing to have a father that wants to move his family in line with the moves of God. Can you remember a time when your dad really sought the Lord? Now, I didn't say go to church. I'm talking about your family's facing a major decision. Maybe it's to move, to change jobs. Maybe to add another child to the family, biologically or adoption. To make an investment. To start a church. Can you remember a time when your dad said, I'm going to have to fast about this for a few days. Or you got up early in the morning and there's your dad. And he's in front of his Bible. And he's just seeking the Lord. James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, put a little plaque at the foot of his dad's grave. Just two words. He prayed. Jacob wouldn't go there until he knew God was going to be there. And sometimes God sends you where you're not welcome. You see, a very rigid caste system existed in Egypt. Earlier in the story when the brothers were eating, Joseph would never eat with the brothers. It would have given him away because it says Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews because Hebrews are detestable to Egyptians. Why? You find out later. 
Joseph says, because you're shepherds. You are the lowest of the low on the caste system in Egypt. Shepherds are considered detestable in Egypt. So here's Joseph, and he's going to bring down a whole clan of shepherds. Can you just picture how the rest of the Egyptians thought about this? Oh, my goodness. Look at those rednecks. They're coming down here with their moonshine and their chaw, and they're all got their NASCAR caps on. The clampets are moving to Egypt. And so Joseph works it out with Pharaoh that they can settle kind of off to themselves down in Goshen where the animals are, which actually protected them from the hedonism of the Egyptian culture. But one thing had to happen. As a matter of respect, Joseph had to bring his hillbilly shepherd daddy to meet Pharaoh. And nobody in the court realized that two princes were standing face to face. Look what happened. Verse 7 of chapter 47, Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, that's not how it's supposed to work. Shepherds don't bless the most powerful man in the world. This has to be a first in the history of the court of Egypt. Here's this old hillbilly shepherd saying, can I just pray for you? In the name of my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I just think you need a blessing today. But let me tell you, it is a blessing when you have a dad that witnesses powerfully before the powerful. Jacob doesn't disrespect Pharaoh, but neither does he bow down and give Pharaoh the place only God deserves. One man has the power of Egypt, and the other man has the promise of God, and they both represent nations. And which nation do you think has the most glorious future? You see, Jacob stands in a long line of men in the Bible. That stood before powerful people. Moses. Elijah. Daniel. Paul. Even Jesus. And they would stand strong. And they would witness to the reality of another kingdom. Who does that? I am absolutely believing the church should minister to the marginalized. But who witnesses to the powerful? When I was a boy, my brother and I, we played on this peewee football team, and it was coached by a man, giant, huge man that played NFL football, gruff, mean, powerful, foul mouth. We'd never been around a man like that very much. And we had practice on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights. And I remember early in the season, my dad walks up to this man and says, my boys will be leaving practice early on Wednesday. What? Yeah, we go to church. I'll come out and I'll get them when it's time. And we did. Every Wednesday night, Dad would walk out. Mark and I would walk away from the team. We'd literally get our uniforms off in the back seat of the station wagon and put on church clothes and go to church. Did that all season long. Toward the end of the season, I'm riding to the game in the back of the pickup of my coach. You could do that back then. And he lets out this long string of vulgar words. And then he turns and sees me and says... I'm sorry. I know your family doesn't use language like that. 
I really respect your family. Whoa. All because my dad witnessed powerfully in front of the powerful. It says in verse 8, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? Which, by the way, is a total dude question. A man never asks a woman that question. This is a guy-to-guy question. You never ask a woman if she's lost weight or how old she is. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my, I love this next word. I could preach a whole sermon on this word. The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. And they don't equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. He did it again. He said, before I leave, anything I can pray about. And he blessed him again in the name of the God of Abraham. Because if you know the living God, then nobody, I don't care how powerful they are, if you know the living God, nobody can bless you more than you can bless them. And Jacob was a father who figured that out. But he saved the best for last. Now remember, Joseph's got two boys. His wife was full-blood Egyptian. His two boys are half Egyptian, and you know how Jacob's boys like to quarrel. Are Joseph's sons going to be considered full heirs of the promise? Jacob made sure of that. He asked for them to come see him, chapter 48. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I come to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who's delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly on the earth. And he blessed them that day. And he said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. You think those boys ever forgot that day with their grandfather? God, bless these boys. God, may they own the name, our name, Abraham, Isaac. May they... Own the promise. May men not yet born turn out to be like these two boys. Jacob is calling his grandsons to step into a bigger story. That's what a dad does. Frederick Bickner says every boy needs someone that says to them, the grace of God means something like, here's your life. And you might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. You see, it's a blessing when a dad passes on faith before he passes on. And Jacob was determined to pass the baton before he finished his race. A good dad does that. By the way, a good mom does too. A good mother and a good father figure out their legacy 
is more important than anything they can put in a wheel. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian this country has ever produced, prayed every day for the next five generations of his family. And Jacob had one last sermon to give, maybe his best one. So in chapter 47, we read, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. And when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, if I've found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they're buried Now do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. And then Joseph swore to him. And Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. His very last act was to remind his family that loyalty to the promise was job one. He could have had the best burial Egypt could pay for. He could have had his own pyramid, but he chose a cave, a little unmarked cave up in Canaan that Abraham bought, the only property Abraham ever owned, and that cave was a symbol. That cave was a symbol of faith and a promise that someday this land would belong to the Hebrews. It's where Abraham and Sarah were buried. It's where Isaac and Rebekah were buried. It's where Leah was buried, not Rachel. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem where she died giving birth to Benjamin. Now his kids are going to get buried in Egypt. His favorite wife was buried in Bethlehem. But Jacob said, last request, you take me to that cave. Bury me with Abraham and Isaac. I want the last thing you remember to be, I believe in the promise. And then he gave his family the greatest blessing of all, the memory of him worshiping. Of all the things the Hebrew writer could have picked out of Jacob's life to show his faith, the one thing he chose was the last thing he did. In chapter 11, verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Do you have a memory of your dad worshiping? I didn't ask if your dad took you to church. Do you have a memory of your dad without any embarrassment, without any conscious thought of what anybody else was thinking, just just boldly worshiping God? Read a beautiful story recently, a preacher went back as guest speaker at a church where years before he had been youth minister. And there he met a a family, two sisters and a brother, asked how their father was doing. They said, well, dad passed away last, last summer of cancer. Oh, he was a good man. They said, yeah, and he he passed fairly peacefully. In fact, his last moment was amazing, really. Well, dad had a stroke three days before he passed. He couldn't speak. And You know how that frustrated dad. He liked to talk. Yeah, he could tell a good story. An hour before he died, 
he was trying to say something. You could tell he was frustrated. Finally, he pointed to the sink and, oh, he wants water. So my brother went and got a glass of water and brought it to dad. But he didn't want to drink it. He pointed to my brother. And so he took a sip. And then dad pointed to sister. And then it dawned on us. He's serving communion. The last thing he wanted to do was worship with his family. And the hospital room became a chapel. Because a good father figures how to point his family to the best father. Now, I always feel a little awkward on days like today. I love to honor dads. And I know this day's hard for some people. Some of you didn't have a dad like Jacob. Some of you are dealing with scars from your dad. Some of you don't even know where your dad is. Some of you can't fix things with your dad because he's passed. But you're still part of God's story. Because this is only the second best father-son reunion story in the Bible. The best one Jesus told. God's a father. He's got a house. He's planning a party. He's already hired the band. He's already got the dance floor. He's already catered the food. And it's for you. The party is for you. You're still invited to the reunion. You are still a part of this story. You are a full heir to the promises of God. And the father figures that some of you needed to hear that today. So let me pray for you. First, here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray for dads and granddads. If if you're a dad or granddad, would you stand up, please? Father, I pray for these men now. They probably, we probably have no idea the influence of the wake of our lives. While we're living and even after we're gone, our life is still impacting generations. So I pray for us, God, that we'll be men of faith, men of honor, men who believe and live by the promise, men who want to bless the world. And Father, we're flawed men. But there's nobody in here any more flawed than Jacob was. And he finished strong. And we can too. So no matter what's happened, no matter what water's under the bridge, God, help us today, right now, decide we will finish strong. We will run a good race. We will make sure that the very last memories that our kids and our grandkids have of us is I was a man of God who was unashamed to worship, to witness And to live out my faith. I pray for these men. Now I'm going to ask everybody else to stand. If you're on a prayer team, would you come down to the front while I finish praying, please? Father, I pray for everybody else now. I just believe there are some people here today, and this is a hard day. They're having trouble forgiving. They're having trouble forgetting. They're having trouble believing that they're part of your story. So I pray for them now. I pray that you will fill them, Father, with your tenderness and your compassion and that they will know they do have a father 
a father that will never leave, a father that will never abandon them, a father they can always run to, a father who will always embrace them. I pray they will come today, confess Christ, give their lives to him, come and seek prayer, and believe no matter how bad the story has been, it can start to get better. I pray for all who are hearing my voice now that someday they'll be at the party because nobody throws a party like a good father. Help us live for that day for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please come.